How many of you have ever heard that phrase, a jack of all trades and master of none? You ever hear that? Uh, maybe some of you actually consider yourself to be that person. You are the uh, jack of all trades, but the master of none. But have you ever stopped to consider for a moment uh, about what it takes to become a master of something or what that actually means? It's not that a master of anything can do something that you or I can't do. But it's something that we can do that they somehow do so much better than the rest of us. Now, for example, I can throw a football, for example, with a pretty decent spiral. But put that ball, uh, maybe even a deflated ball in Tom Brady's hands, and he can possibly throw it further, faster, and with pinpoint accuracy well enough to make a half a dozen trips to the Super Bowl. Now, I can hit a golf ball, too. But when someone like Rory McIlroy plays the game, he hits the ball with more power, more precision than I ever will. It's not that he and I are playing a different game. Uh, we could both be swinging the same club on the same course, but he will get through 18 holes faster because when I play, I tend to spend a fair amount of time looking for balls in the tall grass. See, that's the thing about mastery. It's not that masters at a craft are doing something that no one else can do. It's that they're doing something that almost anyone can do, but their mechanics are so spot on that they perform in a league of their own. Now, it's the same way in our Christian life. Those who excel in the Christian life or what we call the discipleship life or the, the disciplines of discipleship excel not because they do spiritual things that no one else can do, but it's because they do the spiritual things that everyone can do, but they do them with such consistency and such precision that they are able to experience God's power in a way that most people can't and don't. See, great Christians, effective Christians, are so because they excel in the basics and it will always be that way. Masters are masters. Uh, because they master the basics, and a master will always be a master of the basics. I'm going to hunt for this Bible passage here. There we go. Uh, see, we all come to the Christian life one way. And there's really only one way in the Christian life, and it's great to be reminded of that. It is through faith in Jesus the Christ. I mean, Paul says in that great verse, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, this is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. <clears throat> now, this is how we move in to the Christian life, but it's also how we move up in the Christian life. When Paul wrote to the Galatian Christians in chapter 3, he made it a point to tell them that we never, ever outgrow the need for God's grace. It says, after beginning by the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Now, I should probably pause there and say, guess what? We all know it is by grace we've been saved through faith. It's not of works. But what Paul is saying is, what do we try to do after that? We kind of fall back, and now everything we think we need to do to continue to please God. He said, don't do that. You've already been saved by grace through faith. It has nothing to do with your works. Your works are merely a response to what God has already done for you. See, just as we are saved by grace and the mercy of God, we also grow 
by the grace and mercy of God. See, it's God's dream for every last single one of us that we grow up in him, that we literally become spiritual giants. Uh, I guess we call masters of the Christian life. And the only way that can happen is if we keep our feet firmly planted in the basics. You know, I coached basketball for nearly 18 years. And I was a great believer in the basics. That's why I didn't want to have my players just walk out on the floor and hoist up three-point shots. I mean, our practices virtually every day started the same way with the basics. Dribbling drills, passing drills. And we used to shoot layups, three-man weaves. Those of you who played basketball know what that's like. But we would do that until we'd make 25 or 30 or 40 in a row. And believe me, if you missed number 27, you did 27 laps. But we didn't want to, we didn't want to miss out on the basics. And in Christianity, there are certain things, too, like worship and Bible study and prayer that are just the basics that we need to go back to time and time again. Now, this is the third week in kind of an interrupted series we've been doing uh, about how to live in such a way that we actually leave a legacy behind. Uh, simply put, you cannot make a mark in this world until God has made his mark on you. That means you need to become a master of the craft of Christian living. And this isn't about learning some secret code. It's not like going to the seminary where they teach you some magic words or, or, or whatever. Um, this, this is uh, not a super spiritual principle that only super Christians uh, know. It's about learning to excel again, just in the basics, mastering the mechanics of the first fundamental steps of the Christian life. And this is the mastery that takes you all the way to the finish line where you hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, we've been looking at various passages in the book of Acts, and today I'm going to just focus our attention again just on one verse that tells us much of what we need to know in order to master the Christian life. And if you get a handle on these three fundamentals, your Christian life will thrive like never before. Now, I'm going to take you back to grade school. In grade school, you were taught the three R's, weren't you? Reading, writing, and arithmetic. I'm not so sure that they actually teach all of that anymore. Uh, I mean, I've read a lot of papers that confirmation students have written their statements of faith. And uh, the first time I ever got a bunch of those in, I reverted right back to my teaching days. I whipped out that red pen and corrected the spelling, corrected the grammar, corrected the punctuation and everything. But for you to really thrive in this world today, uh, you need to be able to do some reading. I mean, that is the key to all kinds of stuff. You need to be able to write in a, in fact, you should learn how to write cursive, otherwise you won't be able to read any of the historical documents anymore. Or as one lady said, she wrote out her will, uh, leaving most of her estate to her grandson, uh, but she wrote it in cursive, which meant he had to learn how to write that way before he could figure out what he was going to get. And we also need to be able to figure out some mathematics. Nothing more frustrating than to go to McDonald's during a power outage and order a bunch of things and having people turn around and looking to see actually what things cost and then trying to find paper and pencil to write it down and then to actually add and to figure out tax. Same thing in the Christian life. Now, let me tell you the background of the story again to this today's verse. In the very early days of the church, Jesus risen and ascended back to heaven. Peter and John going to the temple like they always did. It was at appointed time for prayer. You got people who were sitting there. They were carrying a crippled man so he could sit outside the entrance and beg. And you heard me say before, begging for alms. And alms are offerings which people were basically supposed to do. 
little gifts that they were supposed to give to people sitting at the gate on their way into worship. Peter saw him, and the guy had his hand out or his basket or whatever. And, of course, Peter says, silver and gold have I none. Now, this is how we also know that Peter must have been a Lutheran pastor. He was dirt poor. A minor joke. But he said, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I will give to you. And he said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the Bible simply says he took him by the hand, raised him up to his feet, and this man was instantaneously healed. And the man went through the courtyard uh, walking and leaping and praising. And, of course, this drew quite a crowd. And everyone was absolutely so amazed. And what did Peter do? He did what every good pastor would do. You get a crowd. He preached a sermon. And in this sermon, Peter told his listeners all about Jesus. He said, the same Jesus that you guys put to death just a few weeks ago is alive again. He said, he's risen from the dead. He is Lord. It is through his power that this man, who you've seen sit here for who knows how long, is now healed. And then Peter actually gives an altar call. He extends an invitation to all of these other people to receive this new way of life, to experience a new kind of relationship with God, a relationship not based on this Old Testament way of doing things, but now based on the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, Peter told him in just a very few words how to begin this new life, and we're going to do this today by looking at another set of three R's, and we're going to see that this is not just talking about a one-time event, but it's like walking down the aisle, filling out a card, and joining a church. He's talking about a lifestyle that we pursue every day of our life. That's because, like as I said before, the Christian life, the way up is the same way as the way in. Just as you are saved by God's grace and mercy, you grow in God's grace and mercy. I'm going to go back to that one simple little verse. It's in verse 19. And I think back there, let me go back to that verse there for a moment. And here's Peter's appeal. He said, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Now, this one verse reveals the three R's, basic steps we need to kind of master on a daily basis. And the very first of these, the very first word is repentance. Now, I wonder how many of you thought, as you got ready for church this morning, you know, I bet Dr. Kolb's going to preach on repentance because that's all those preachers ever talk about. I don't know whether you thought that or not. But the truth is, I don't think we preach about repentance enough. And because of that, a lot of people don't know, really know what repentance is. Now, a lot of people equate repentance with some crazy, wild-haired guy standing on a street corner with a sign that says, Repent, for the end is near. Uh, or they think that repent means that you've got to stop having fun, or that repent means that you have to feel guilty. But guess what? That's not all of it. I mean, feeling guilty for your sins is, is a necessary part, because feeling guilty means that you're about to take the very first steps towards coming to grips with what your behavior means. Repentance takes the idea a step further. It means that you're actually ready to do something about it. Now, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia. Metanoia. It's a compound word that literally means that you change your mind and you change your attitude. 
See, to repent is to make a decision that changes the entire direction of your life. Every time I've ever taught on repentance, I said, what is repentance? Repentance is, is like this. It is changing your mind and then changing your direction. You're going one way and you say, this is the wrong way. And now I'm going to repent and I'm going to go the opposite direction. See, when you think about it, repentance is the ultimate self-help term. It's the ultimate pursuit of excellence term. Repentance means that you've come to grips with the actions in your life, the attitudes of yours that are not good, that aren't right, and you accept responsibility for doing something about it. And this is something we've got to do every last single day. This last week, while I had a lot of time to read, I, I ran across the quote uh, about Sam Walton. And you know Sam Walton being the founder of Walmart. And this quote comes from David Glass, who was the former CEO of Walmart. He said this about Sam Walton. There's never been a day in his life since I've known him that he didn't improve in some way. I mean, could that be said about you, that there's never been a day gone by that you did not improve in some way? Now, you know what, what that is? It, it really is very simple. It's repentance. Repentance means that you've identified something in your life that needs to change, and you've made a decision to change it. Now, repentance doesn't just mean that you say, I used to not believe in Jesus, and now I'm going to start believing in Jesus. Repentance, actually, is I used to not believe in Jesus, now I believe in Jesus, and because now I am his follower, I now invite the Holy Spirit to reveal to me those things that are in me that need to change so that I can be more and more like Jesus every day. And again, this is not a one-and-done kind of a deal. It's a again and again and again and again until you win. It's a daily experience. You keep doing it until you get it right. See, each and every day, you know, you may get up in the morning and say, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. But each and every day, you also need to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal those things in your life that need to change. And I'm going to say, reveal the things in your life that need to change. Don't start your day by asking the Lord to reveal to other people the things that they need to change. Work on yourself first. Each and every day you face up to your actions, your attitudes, and you take responsibility by the power of the Holy Spirit to do something about it. That's our first word. Our second word is reconciliation. Now, this reconciliation is based on forgiveness. Peter said in verse 19, Turn to God that your sins may be, what, wiped out. Now, in the old King James, I think it said blotted out. Uh, now, the Greek word for wiped out literally does mean blot out. And I did a little bit of research on that. What that means, in, that day, in those days when, when this book was written, there was a type of papyrus that they used as writing paper and a type of ink that you could kind of use for temporary documents. Uh, you could write on it, and then later, when you were done, if you didn't need it anymore, you could take a rag or something, and you could literally blot it out you could wipe it off. It's almost like the original whiteboard, and the papyrus was like new, ready to be used again. Now, do any of you recognize that? You ever seen one of those before? An Etch-a-Sketch. Oh, that was kind of the forerunner to the iPad, wasn't it? Uh, I don't know if you remember how it works. Uh, I hated this thing. I'm sure my wife loved it. She's probably really good at it. I don't know. 
but you got two knobs, those little white things at the bottom, that control the ink on the screen. One was vertical, one was horizontal. When I was hunting up pictures on Google for the other day, I, I was tempted to put up some pictures that people had actually done with this thing, but I was so embarrassed by seeing them, I didn't put them up, so I put it up the way my screen would have looked. <laughs> A few little squiggly lines. And you twist them back and forth, and you can create a picture. But like me, if you're like me, you just do that. Now, when you're all done, and it's not quite the way you want it, what do you do? You went like this, and you shook it, and it went right back to the way it was before, a blank screen. You're ready to start again. Now, I use this illustration because this is how the Apostle John thought about it. In First John chapter 1, 9, he said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will what? Etch a sketch our sins. He will, he will forgive us our sins and he will purify us. He will shake it all back in place and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. See, that's how God's forgiveness works. It's total. It's complete. It's about more than just having your sins X out on a piece of paper. It's about being brought into a totally reconciled relationship with him where everything is wiped clean. I hope you understand something about your sin. We've all been separated from God by sin. Now, just in, not just in this life, but in, uh, but in the life to come. And it doesn't take much to, to experience, it doesn't take much experience to learn that it also has the power to destroy everything that it touches. Sin separates us from other people, but most important, it separates us from God. But what did Jesus do? Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the promised one of God, came into this world to bring us back together. To put us back into a right relationship, not only with ourselves, not only with one another, but most significantly with God. In 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote these words, All this is from God who reconciled us, brought us back together through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. See, not only has he reconciled us, but now he's given us the ministry to reconcile. It's our job as ministers of the word as well. And ministers doesn't just mean the guy who happens to be ordained. All of you are ministers. All of you have this ministry of reconciliation. To do what? That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against him. So what can we do? We can practice this also and not hold other people's sins against them either. See, forgiveness and the reconciliation that comes with it is, is pivotal to the Christian life. We really cannot master the Christian life without it. We need God's forgiveness and we need to learn to walk in forgiveness with one another as well. I can't even begin to tell you how many times I've ever sat in my office over the years and, and hear people that I know sat in church on, on Sunday morning and went through a confession of sins and prayed the Lord's Prayer and forgive us our trespasses, even we forgive the trespasses of everybody else, but who had the most unforgiving hearts with their spouses or with their children or whatever. I just tell you, friend, you, you just can't do that. It just doesn't work. We cannot master the Christian life if forgiveness and reconciliation don't go hand in hand. We need God's forgiveness and we need to extend it to other people as well. And we see this taught all the way through the Bible. Uh, for example, Ephesians 4.32, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. How? Just as in Christ God forgave you. 
And see, just like repentance, forgiveness is not a one and done experience. It's an everyday thing. Every day you're going to face the forgiveness issue. So maybe you need to start out your day in the morning and say, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. But then ask yourself questions like, is there any sin in my life I need to confess? I mean, sin that is actually hampering or hobbling or affecting my life in Jesus. Or is there any sin in my life that's creating problems in my relationships? Is there some sin that's causing a problem between me and my spouse or uh, between towards my kids or with my co-workers or uh, towards other people in our family? Or is there anyone that I know of who has offended me that I need to go first and forgive them? Am I holding something against someone else? See, every day we need to face that forgiveness issue with God and others so that we can ultimately live that reconciled life. Now, here's the third R. Refreshing. Verse 19 says, so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Now, I love that phrase. Times of refreshing. Now, most of you know that I had uh, surgery about a week ago. And, you know, whenever you've had surgery, there comes point, points in time in that that times of refreshing are pretty good. You know, when you've had a tube shoved down your throat and your throat is very dry and scratchy, you know how great cold water feels. Uh, you know that if you have IVs poked into your arm, uh, as much as it hurt to go in and sometimes as much as it maybe even hurts to go out, You'd think, oh, man, it feels so much better now. Times of refreshment. Now, I love that. But, you know, way beyond, you know, recovering from surgery or all these other things, you know, being out on a hot walk and then having something cold to drink, you know, refreshment is in the spiritual life is what it's really all about. See, it refreshes us, it renews us, it rejuvenates us. And that's what God wants for his people, that they live a life refreshed. Now, the question is, how do we get there? How do we live this refreshed life? Well, the way verse 19 is translated in the New King James Version says, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of God. Now, let me say that again. Times of refreshing may come from the presence of God. See, that's how we're refreshed. It's when we are in the presence of God. Now, understand, God is everywhere. I understand that. But I also know that there are times when you really know you are in the presence of God. Now, I imagine everybody here, at one time or another, knows what it's like to be spiritually and emotionally dry and thirsty. To feel like your tank is empty. You know, that you're running on empty. You've got nothing left in you. And I would say that everybody here has probably felt that one time or another. And if you haven't, guess what? You probably will. Because that's what life does to you sometimes. It just sucks the life out of you. It saps everything you've got. And it doesn't give you anything back. And if you're not careful, you can fall into the trap of living your entire life always running on empty. Or worse than that, running a couple of quarts low. Now, we're not going to ask for true confession here, but have you ever had a car or a truck that got great gas mileage, but terrible oil mileage? Because it had a leak, and somehow you could not fix that leak. Everywhere you went, 
People could find you because you left a trail. Everywhere you parked, you left a puddle. But for some reason or another, you thought, well, oil is kind of expensive. And so sometimes you waited too long and too often that the engine ran dangerously low of oil. But maybe every once in a while you said, oh, that check engine light is on or that oil light is on. And you did what an old farmer friend of mine said to take care of that. You take a piece of the electric, black electrical tape and put it over there so you don't see it anymore. Now, if you've done this, and again, you don't need to confess it to me, confess it to your wife or husband. But do you remember the knocking sound that the motor would make when it was not sufficiently lubricated? I can already identify a couple of people who have done it. I won't point them out or even mention their names. But I'm recording it for later purposes. And sure enough, eventually you waited too long, and one day the knocking got louder and louder, and then it stopped. Because the engine completely locked up. Now, that's about the time you learn, yeah, oil is expensive, but it's cheap compared to the cost of a brand new engine. So that's why you make sure that you change your oil regularly and you watch those little lights. But guess what? The spiritual life is the same way. Look at a couple of these passages. Psalm 92. David said, I shall be anointed with fresh oil. Psalm 23, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. See, there's something about being in the presence of God that charges your batteries. It quenches your thirst. It fills your tank. I don't know about you, but when there are times of prayer and you just feel like you've been about as close to God as you possibly can be, you walk away and you go, oh, man, I feel so good about this. I know that when I'm studying the scriptures and even preparing a sermon, while that's kind of an academic thing, I, I step back sometimes, I'll look at that, and I just say, wow, I, it just makes me feel that much better. When I hear really good teaching or if I hear some great worship music or something, I just kind of I feel better about it. It feels like my engine was about ready to give out, but I was anointed with fresh oil in God's presence. And just like repentance and reconciliation, this is not a one-and-done experience. It's an everyday event. It's an essential part to living the victorious Christian life. That's why we see Jesus modeling it. Luke 5.16, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Now, I always think if, if Jesus needed this, if Jesus needed times of refreshing, if he needed time alone with his Heavenly Father, man, how much more do we need it? See, spending time in the presence of God refreshes your spirit like nothing else. Now, we've talked about mastering the Christian life like other people who've mastered their craft. They become masters by doing the basics unbelievably well. But there's more to being a master builder than just being able to drive a straight nail. But there's never less to it than that either. A master builder never, ever outgrows his or her need for the basics, and neither does anyone else who wants to master the Christian life. That's because in the Christian life, the way up is the same as the way in. We are saved by grace, and we grow by grace. We live each day by mercy, and we grow in mercy. 
For this reason, we need to make it a daily endeavor, endeavor to attend to the three R's. The R of repentance. Every day, I take responsibility for changing what needs to be changed in my attitudes and actions. Reconciliation. Every day, I seek God's forgiveness so that I can live in harmony with him and I extend his forgiveness to others that we may live in harmony together and refreshing. Every day I spend time alone with God so that he may anoint my head with oil and fill my cup to overflowing that I might experience times of refreshing in his presence. I'm going to end basically the way I started today by saying this. You can't make your mark in the world until God has made his mark on you. And he does it by grace, and he does it by mercy, and he does it one day at a time. May God grant us all times of refreshment as we practice the three R's.